Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. When we prepared for this series of meetings, the theme that was selected is based upon Luke 1 and verse 1, where Dr. Luke began his gospel record by saying that he was going to write about things most surely believed among us. You know, there are many things that we do in the service of God that are truly matters of opinion and matters of judgment. But when the Lord clearly speaks on any subject, that, that for us, or for most of us at least, is the end of the matter. There are some things that we are willing to go to the mat for, and we're talking this week about some of those things. Things most surely believed among us. These lessons are basic and fundamental because of the very nature of the theme. And so in each of these services, we've been talking about some of the greatest issues that we find discussed in Scripture. And tonight, the subject that is assigned has to do with baptism. And we are approaching the lesson in the form of a question. Must I be baptized? Now, as members of the churches of Christ, we understand that through the years, this has been a subject that we knew a whole lot about. And if we didn't know any other scriptures, we knew some scriptures that pertain to baptism. But one of the things that I thought of when I was putting together what I wanted to say tonight about this important subject is that my friend Charles Hodge says that we need to read familiar scriptures more carefully. Simply because we know something is in the Bible may not mean that we have grasped fully what God wants us to know about that subject. And this may be one of those. Must I be baptized? Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to ask four questions. And the first one I think is most obvious. What is... Baptism. And I have an idea that there are several of you in this audience know there is a New Testament word in the Greek New Testament, baptizo. 
And it is translated into English or transliterated, baptize. That New Testament word means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to cover up. And I say that New Testament word because this is one word and one of many, by the way, that does not need to be defined by Webster's Dictionary for us. And the reason I say that is that Webster's Dictionary defines terms as they generally are understood in our culture. And our culture defines baptism differently than the New Testament does. But in the New Testament, it is dip, to plunge, immerse, to cover up. By way of interest, I want to read a passage tonight that is found in the Old Testament. And the reason in this passage is because about 200 years before Jesus came, there were a group of about 70 Jewish scholars down in Egypt who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language. And of course, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. Their translation is called the Septuagint version. Septuagint really means 70. That refers to the 70 men who made the translation. It is abbreviated by Roman numerals, LXX. If you know Roman numerals, you know that's 50 and two tens or 70. And when the Septuagint version was made, I want you to notice with me a passage in the Old Testament that's found in the fourth chapter of the book of Leviticus. It is describing the sacrificial system under the law of Moses and the responsibilities of the priests who offered those sacrifices. My purpose for reading this passage is not because it pertains to the priests of the Old Testament or to Old Testament sacrifices, but because of three words that are used here. And I want you to see with me how the Septuagint version translated them, the Hebrew into Greek. Here's what the passage says in the New King James Version. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood. Now, he had just described a a bull that was slaughtered. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood. And I underscore that word dip. He will dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary, and I emphasize the word sprinkle. So there's dip and there's sprinkle. And then verse 7 says, And the priest 
shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar. In the English Bible, we have dip and sprinkle and pour. When the Septuagint translators brought the Hebrew into Greek, they translated the word that I have here in the English Bible for dip, which is baptizo or bapto, the word for baptize. They translated it with baptize, and in this English translation, it's translated dip. That's one of the meanings of baptize, to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to overwhelm. They also translated a word that in the English Bible is sprinkle, but it's not the word for baptism. They also used the word that's translated here, pour, but these words for sprinkle and pour are different than the word for dip or to baptize. Now, why do I mention that? Because you know as well as I do that there are practices called baptism that in addition to immersion include sprinkling water upon one or in addition to the idea of dipping and sprinkling, there is the word for pour. And sometimes people pour water on another, and that's called baptism. In the Greek language, that doesn't hold water. That's why I said in the beginning that we can't always depend upon Webster to define biblical terms. What I'm saying to you tonight is, That in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about baptize, it is speaking of dipping, plunging, immersing, or covering up. But if I didn't know anything about the original language, I still would know what baptism is. In Romans 6, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul said, We are buried with him by baptism into death. Paul understood what this word was about. We are buried with him. In Colossians 2 and verse 12, the same apostle said, buried with him in baptism. That's a biblical description of baptism. Buried with him in baptism, whereon also we're raised with him through faith in the working of God. Paul believed that in that act of obedience, being baptized, that God was active in that he was doing something. He was accomplishing something. And our faith is not in the water of baptism. Our faith is in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that when we obey God in baptism, that God does something. And our faith is in The working of God. And we'll see as we progress tonight what God says he will do in that action. And then in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. You remember the story of the Ethiopian nobleman and 
the preacher who was Philip, the evangelist. Philip had preached the gospel to the Ethiopian. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the Ethiopian said, Here is water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? Now, that's very important and interesting. The Bible says that Philip preached to him Jesus. The Ethiopian had been reading from the what we have in our Bibles, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which is a very thorough description of the coming Messiah. And Philip showed that that prophecy pertained to Jesus of Nazareth. He preached unto him Jesus. The next thing we read is they come to the water and the Ethiopian wants to be baptized. How did he know to be baptized? Scripture says that Philip preached Jesus. And that's my very point. He knew to be baptized because in the preaching of Jesus, people are told how to respond to Christ. And one of the things that we do in response to Jesus is we are baptized. But here is my point pertaining to what baptism is from the 8th chapter of Acts. The Bible says that Philip told the Ethiopian, if you believe, you may. And he said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'll come back to that a bit later. But they commanded then the chariot to stand still, and they went down into the water. And the New Testament is specific in saying both Philip and the eunuch. Now that tells me something about what took place there. They both went down into the water. And Philip baptized the Ethiopian. And then Scripture says they came up out of the water. Now let me ask you this. What action that is called baptism requires a going down into the water and a coming up out of the water? Does sprinkling require that? It doesn't require it of the one who administers it, and it is not required of the candidate if he's going to be sprinkled. What about pouring water on them? Well, it isn't essential that the administrator or the one that is having the water poured on him go down into the water and come up out of it. But if an immersion is going to take place, I know very well, and I know this happens occasionally. But if immersion is going to take place, the one administering it may be standing outside of the container for the water. I understand that. But in order for the person to be baptized, they have to be in the water and they have to be immersed. They have to be buried. And then there's a coming forth out of. Now that is the point I want to make about what is baptism. The second question I want to raise tonight is who should be baptized? And the answer I want to give, I want to discover right from the Scripture. The first thing I want to say is that believers, believers in God, believers in Christ, believers 
of the gospel, which includes the fact that they are lost in sin. Believers are subjects of baptism. How do I know that? Jesus Christ himself said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So if a person is incapable of believing, whether it be because they're too young or they have not developed mentally, if he's not a believer, he is not a subject of baptism. But believers are to be baptized. Second, penitent believers are to be baptized. In Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said to that multitude gathered in Jerusalem on the first Pentecost, following the resurrection of Christ, and on the day that the church began, he said, repent, that's one thing, and be baptized, that's another, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, I know that penitent believers are subjects of baptism. Now, I pointed out earlier this week, That Romans 2 verse 4 says the goodness of God works repentance. It leads us to repentance. How true. When we contemplate how good God has been, how sinful we have been, then we ought to be motivated to turn from sin and turn to the direction that God wants us to be walking in. So the goodness of God leads to repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the apostle said, Godly sorrow works repentance. You see, it isn't just to be sorry. That's not what repentance is. A person can be discovered to commit a crime, and he may be sorry he got caught, but that doesn't mean he's a penitent. If a person repents of sin, he is sorry toward God. He's sorry that he has broken the heart of God, that he's rebelled against God, that he's failed to give God the place in his life that he should have. And so he turns from one direction and goes in another with a reformation of life, and that's what repentance is. Repent and be baptized. Penitent believers are subjects of baptism. And then returning to the Ethiopian story, do you remember when the Ethiopian said, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Who should be baptized? Penitent believers who are willing to confess their faith in Christ. Biblically, those are the subjects of baptism. Question number three. We have asked, what is baptism? Who should be baptized? The third question, why should we be baptized? And I I want to begin the answer by asking two more questions. The first of these questions is, how does one enter Christ? How does one enter Christ? 
Now, if you're wondering why I began the answer to one question by asking another, it is for this reason. The Bible says, Ephesians 1 verse 7, that it is in Christ. Christ is the subject of this section of Paul's letter. And he says, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption is the freedom of slaves with a price being paid. When Christ came into the world, He found us as the slaves of sin. You may remember that in John chapter 8, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. That's where He found all of us. Enslaved to sin, and He came, paid the price with His own blood at Calvary, so that we might be made free. That's what redemption is. And redemption, Paul affirms, is in Christ. He also mentioned in that passage, Ephesians 1, 7, the forgiveness of sin. And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is to declare the guilty to be innocent. And you and I are the guilty. We need to be forgiven. We need to be declared innocent. But where is redemption and innocence found? In Christ. Do you see how important it is that we ask the question, how then may I enter into Christ where redemption and forgiveness are found? Now, wouldn't it be a tragedy if God told us that you must be in Christ to be redeemed or forgiven and then never gave us any information about how to get there? But God did give us that information. And in Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul said, as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. In Galatians 3 and verse 27, the same apostle said, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, those two statements tell us that the threshold across which we must travel to be redeemed and forgiven is nothing other than being baptized into Christ because it is in Christ that those two blessings are to be found. Now, that's my first question. The second question I want to ask in regard to this matter of why be baptized is this. How does one enter the church, the body of Christ? Now, we will remember, won't we, that Ephesians 2 and verse 16 says that it is in the body of Christ. And you you can't read the letter to the Ephesians, which is about the church, without understanding the church is the body of Christ. And Paul says that it's in the body that Christ reconciles us to God. Now, if Christ reconciles us to God in the one body, therefore in the church, 
That means that we're not reconciled to God when we're outside the church. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, that by one spirit you were all baptized into one body. Now I'm going to spend a moment here because I want us to see something that is extremely important. And it's extremely important, not because it's more important than other things we're talking about tonight, but it is extremely important in this culture and in this atmosphere, not only out of the church, but people in the church. Now, let's remember that it's in the body that we're reconciled. It is in the body that God gives us the blessing of salvation. Ephesians 5.23 says that Christ is the Savior of the body. What, what else is He promised to save? So we want to be a part of the church. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15 says, By one spirit you're all baptized into one body. Why am I placing emphasis upon that passage? Well, I want to say first that I believe the passage says what it means and means what it says. But some conscientious, sincere people in and out of the church have wondered if 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15 applies to baptism for the remission of sins to put us into Christ where we've been buried in water and raised again, is even under consideration here by Paul. And it's because of the wording, by one spirit you're all baptized into one body. And some have reached the conclusion, this must mean that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's where I need to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first few verses of this chapter deal with what are called spiritual gifts. And without going into detail about spiritual gifts, just let me say that spiritual gifts were given to some in the first century church through the laying on of apostles' hands, and whenever we're told how they were given, that's the way they were given, to help the infant church until the New Testament was completed. If I'm correct, and I believe I can substantiate my point of view here scripturally, if I'm correct that these gifts were given only by the laying on of apostles' hands, that tells us that they were not to be continued on and on. It tells us something of the duration. Because when the last apostle died, those wouldn't be given any longer. And when the last person upon whom the apostles laid their hands died, these gifts would go away. They gradually went away as the New Testament was gradually being written. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how those gifts were given to people. 
And I want you to notice three words. And I don't want to be overly technical, but I do hope we can embrace what I'm about to say. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 8, Paul begins to speak of how the nine spiritual gifts that he enumerates here were given. And he said, for to one is given the word of wisdom, and the English Bible says, through the Spirit. The word that is translated through is a little three-letter word, dia, D-I-A. And that little word in Greek means the means by which something takes place. The means. And Paul is affirming here that these spiritual gifts were given by means of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit gave them. Now, in the next part of verse 8, he said to another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, but it's a different word. It is a little four-letter word, kata, K-A-T-A, and it literally means down from. Now, now, what do we learn in those two words? One of the things we learn is that these spiritual gifts came down from the Spirit. That they were given as the means, that is, the Holy Spirit was the means through which they were given. What's that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with understanding 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Because, you see, in verse 9, Paul says, To another he gave faith by. And that's a third word. It's a two-letter word, E-N. To another he gave faith, that's a miraculous kind of faith, by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by, same word, in, the same Spirit. Now, Paul uses those three words as synonyms. Because he says, to some he gave this gift by means of the Spirit. To another, he gave another gift that came down from the Spirit. And to another, he gave the gifts in the Spirit. And that little word in can mean in, with, or by. Now, when we come down to verse 15, he says, for by, and that's one of those three words, en. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, if I'm correct that Paul uses these words interchangeably, and he does, and they're three different words, and they are, and one means by means of, another means down from, then in is not talking about the substance in which one is baptized. It is talking about where it came from. And I submit tonight that when we are taught 
to be baptized. It is by means of, it came down from the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the gospel. And everything we know about baptism came by means of, down from the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about the same kind of baptism that Luke talks about in regard to the Ethiopian. It is a baptism in water. And there's a going down into and a coming up out of. How do you know to do that? That didn't just come into your mind. That wasn't learned just from another human being. That came down from God. And the Spirit of God chose the very words to tell us about it. And all that we know on this subject came from the Holy Spirit. And so by one Spirit you were all baptized into one body. What's the body? The church. How do I enter the church? I'm baptized into that body. Now, two questions answering My question, why be baptized? Now, let's look a little closer. And I want to simply mention, with little comment, some of the basic New Testament passages from which we learn about baptism. Let's begin with Mark 16, 16. He who believes, that's one thing, and is baptized, that's another shall be saved. You know, it's amazing to me how in one area of life we can reason in one way, and when it comes to religion, we we reason in an entirely different way. I want to ask tonight if if all of us can understand something that I want to say to you, and if we can understand it all alike. And here's what I'm asking. If a person has a job and the employer says, if you will come to work, that's one thing. And if you will do your job, that's another thing. Because you can go to work and not do your job. But if you will go to work or come to work and you will do your job, you will receive a paycheck. Now, I have a poor illustration there, but we understand that, don't we? What if he doesn't go to work? Well, he probably won't get paid. What if he goes to work and stands around, doesn't do his job? He may not get paid. But if he goes to work and does his job, he'll get paid. Jesus said, he who believes, that's one thing, and is baptized, that's another, shall be saved. Why can't we understand that if one doesn't believe... He's not going to be saved. But if he believes, he needs to take the other step that Jesus talked about and is baptized, shall be saved. A marvel of marvels to me is why it is so difficult for us to simply take God at his word, do what he asks us to do, instead of debating with him or trying to explain away what he says. We want what God offers. Why not accept it in the way that God is offering it? Then there is Acts 2.38. Repent 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In everyday life, we can understand that kind of reasoning. We can understand it in religion, too. Take him at his word. As a believer, you repent and you're baptized. And what happens? There is remission or the forgiveness of sins. Then come over to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. This is an amazing conversion story. And the subject of it is a jailer in Philippi over in Europe. This jailer didn't know anything about Christ because the gospel had not come to Europe until Paul brought it to Philippi. And he got into trouble because of good that he preached, and he found himself in jail. You know this story. At midnight, there was an earthquake, and the doors of the prison were open. The stocks of the prisoners were unloosed. And the jailer, who was charged with his very life for keeping those prisoners where they were, thought that they were all gone. He drew his sword to take his life. And from out of the darkness, Paul said, do not harm yourself. We're all still in here. Then what happened? The jailer came trembling and fell down at the feet of Paul and his traveling companion Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He had never asked and never would ask a question more important than that. What must I do to be saved? We know, don't we, how Paul answered that. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Here's a statement that I want to make about believing in Christ or having faith in Christ that is absolutely certain. And the statement is this. Whenever you find faith or belief that is acceptable to God in Scripture. Are you with me on this? Whenever you find belief or faith that is accepted by God in Scripture, either the Old or the New Testaments, that faith or belief will involve three elements. Conviction of that which is true, trust as to what God promises, and obedience to the divine will. There are no exceptions to that. There are accounts where people are said to believe. But if that belief is not inclusive of conviction and trust and obedience, God didn't accept it. As a matter of fact, James says that even the demons believe, but they're not saved because they believe the fact but there is no trust and obedience in what they believe. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. But you can't believe until you know something, can you? Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the next line says in Acts 16... 
they spoken to him the word of the Lord. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? They tell him to believe, but he doesn't know what to believe. So they're going to teach him so that his faith can rest upon the testimony of the gospel. So they spoke to him the word of the Lord. Then what happened? He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes because they'd been beaten when they were put into prison. And if the washing of their stripes is not an action of repentance, I don't know what it would be. But then notice what follows that. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes. And then he was baptized. He in his house. And it was then, not before, but it was then, after he was told to believe, after he was taught, after he is baptized, that Scripture says... He rejoiced in the Lord, having believed. Do you see, his belief included his responding to the gospel. And he did not rejoice until his faith had led him, based upon the word that he received from Paul, until his faith had led him to obey the gospel. Number four, Acts 22, verse 16, is a description of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in his own words, though guided by the Holy Spirit. He's telling about his own conversion. Do you remember the road to Damascus? You you remember what happened, that this light came down from heaven, and Saul fell to the earth, and he heard a, a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. Now, he could have said, well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting those Christians. But you see, here's an important element for us to embrace. You can't mistreat the brethren and not mistreat Christ. And what Saul had done to the brethren, he was doing to Christ. And when Saul said, what, what shall I do, Lord? It's interesting to me that this is what he was told to do. Go into the city. And there it will be told you what you must do. Now, it is of interest to me that the Lord did not say, go into the city and be told you what you might do, what you may do, or what you should do. He said, it will be told you what you must do. He goes into the city. He's blinded now because of a bright light. And he's three days and three nights engaged in prayer, neither eating nor drinking. Here is a believing. How do I know that? On the road, he said, who are you, Lord? When Jesus identified himself, Saul did not say, well, I don't even believe in you. The next thing was, Lord, what do you want me to do? So he's a believer. He is a penitent believer. So when the preacher came and Jesus said, he'll tell you what you must do, he doesn't say, Saul, you need to believe. He already did that. Or Saul, you need to repent. 
He is a penitent. And the one thing that he was told to do is the one thing that so many people want to reject. Isn't that strange? He was told to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What did he become? Well, we know he became a Christian. We know he became the great apostle of the Gentiles. And I want to ask, what will happen if you do what he did? You'll be a Christian too, won't you? And then there's Romans 6 and verse 3. Paul said, do you, do you not know that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? That's very important. You were baptized into his death. Why is it important? Because it was in his death that Christ shed his blood. And it's by his blood that we're redeemed and forgiven. We learned that from Ephesians 1.7. Somehow, we must get into the place where that blood can cleanse us. And Paul affirms that when we were baptized, we were baptized into the death of Christ, where the blood was shed. And that blood washes and cleanses us from sin. Now, there's one other passage. Let's put it up. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 just states it plainly. Baptism does now also save us. Now, there are a number of things in the New Testament to which salvation is attributed. And Bible students know that. We're not saved just by one thing, but there is a combination of things. And we've talked about some of them here tonight. But when Peter makes this plain statement, where do I get my right or my authority to reject what he said. Baptism does now also save us. Now we've asked three questions and I have one more. My fourth question is, is baptism, is baptism, is being immersed in water a ritual or a transformation? Why would I need to ask a question like that? Well, I'll tell you what I'm asking it. Just a few weeks ago, and this has happened to me on many other occasions. But a few weeks ago, a mother came to me. She had two boys who were almost grown. And she said, I've got to get my boys baptized. Would you have anything you would want to say to her or ask her if she'd said that to you? Well, I certainly did. And I asked, why is it that you want to get them baptized? She said, they've got to be in the church. Well, yeah, I know that. But do they want to be baptized? You see, she had the concept... That baptism is just 
something you do is a right. And as long as you do that, it, it really doesn't depend upon how you approached it, whether you're even a, a penitent believer or not. Therefore, whether or not you're even a subject for baptism. And I submit tonight that baptism is not a ritual. It's not something that you just do because you want to be right with God and you're going to live the way you want to live. It is a transforming act. In Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul talked to these Ephesian Christians, some of whom he had baptized himself. And he said, you have put off the old self through the renewing of your mind, and you have put on the new self, which after God is created. That's a powerful statement. When you became Christians, you put off the old self, you put on the new self, and God did something. He made of you a new creation. You now are created new in Christ. And that isn't the end of the matter. That is the beginning. Because from that point on, you're desirous of living your life for the one who died and gave his life for you. And then in Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to to say this, and I'm going to close tonight. In Romans chapter 6, that's the same chapter where Paul described baptism in the first few verses. We looked at some of those verses tonight to show that we're baptized into the death of Christ, and baptism is a burial and a resurrection to a new life. And in verses 17 and 18... Paul said this, God be thanked, whereas you were the servants of sin, you have obeyed from the heart the form of teaching delivered, being then, when? When you obeyed the form of teaching delivered, being then made free from sin, You became the servants of righteousness. Now, I want to notice a thing or two about that. He said, you were the slaves of sin. In the same chapter, at verse 20, he says, you didn't have any righteousness. When you were the slaves of sin, you were not right with God. But the beauty of the gospel is, we have no righteousness of our own because we're sinful. In Isaiah 64, 4 to 6, the prophet said in the long ago, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing with which to commend ourselves to God. How are we going to be accepted of God then? 1 Corinthians 1, 30 says Christ is our righteousness. He is the garment that we put on in place of our sinful garment. That helps me understand Galatians 3.27 better, where Paul said, 
for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. You see, we're clothed with Christ. Without that, there is no way we can stand in the presence of the Holy God. So Paul said, you were the slaves of sin, you're free from righteousness, but you've obeyed from the heart the form of teaching delivered, and you have been made free from sin and the servants of righteousness. Now my question is, when did all that happen? Here it is. You've obeyed from the heart the form of teaching. What is a form? I know nothing about carpentry. I know nothing about working with concrete. But I know this much. That when a person is going to build a building and he's going to put some concrete as a foundation, he doesn't just go out and throw the concrete on the ground. He builds a form. Isn't that right? And then the concrete is put in the form, and the concrete conforms to the form. We all understand that, don't we? Now, Paul says, you've obeyed from the heart the form. God has laid down a form into which we need to be poured. You obeyed the form of the teaching. What did Paul teach? Well, you could say there were many things that Paul teach, and you'd be right. But what did he basically, fundamentally teach? The gospel. And how does he summarize the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, he said, I preach unto you the gospel which you received wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. And then he said, I delivered unto you as of first importance how that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the heart and core of the gospel. And that is the form into which we are poured. Well, how's that happen? Staying with Romans chapter 6, how does that happen? Well, Christ died for our sins. What about us? We die to sin. Christ was buried, and we're buried. Where are we buried? When we're immersed, when we are baptized. And Christ rose again. And we rise, Paul affirms, from that burial to live in newness of life. You've obeyed from the heart the form of teaching and being made free from sin. You become the slaves of righteousness. Let's put up the rest of them. So we're God's new creation. Let's go on. We are now righteous and made holy in God's sight. And we have obeyed the form of teaching and we've been made free from sin. Now, my last word is this. If you've never been baptized by immersion and for the forgiveness of sin, don't you think you need to do that today?
the Savior is yet saying through the written word, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Why don't we try to get it right and do what God has asked us to do And in our faith that believes what God says, in our faith that trusts Him for His promises, and in our faith that obeys His will, why would we not want to conform to the form? Could we help somebody in that tonight? Then you come and tell us what you want to do as we stand together.